This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritu Parna, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Payal Arora and Usha Raman. Payal Arora is a digital anthropologist and author of award-winning books, including The Next Billion Users with Howard Press. Her expertise lies in digital cultures, inequality, and inclusive design. She's a professor and chair in technology, values, and global media cultures at Erasmus University, Rotterdam, and co-founder of FemLab, a future of work initiative. Usha Raman is a professor in the Department of Communication, University of Hyderabad. Her research and teaching span the areas of journalism pedagogy, critical studies of science, health and technology, feminist media studies, and digital cultures. She was elected Vice President of International Association for Media and Communication Research for the period 2020 to 24. She is a co-founder of FemLab, an IDRC-funded initiative on feminist futures of work. Today, we are going to be in discussing their co-edited book, Feminist Futures of Work, Reimagining Labor in the Digital Economy. Uh, the book is co-edited along with Rani Kunik, who unfortunately couldn't make it today, and it has been published by the Amsterdam University Press in 2023. Payal and Nerura, w- welcome to NBN, and thank you so much for giving me your valuable time. Thank you so much for having us on board. Hi, hi everyone, and thank you to Pana. Right. So let me begin by asking, you know, what was your main motivation behind putting this book together? Yeah. So uh, this we are very excited about this book. And uh, but, you know, behind every book, there's always a story. And our story is that it was funded by IDRC. So it was a very exciting time in uh, 2020. And where Usha and I received this grant from a Canadian grant agency that was focusing on the future of work in the global south. And we had pitched a project on how, uh, you know, low-income women workers and other marginalized groups were using the new digital technologies that were uh, coming to play and how they were shifting the nature of work and possibly helping them organize themselves digitally, collectively, and, you know, improve their work conditions. 
So uh, much of our work was meant to be, uh, you know, uh, and the field sites and Bangladesh and India. And our vision was to come up with a book uh, at the end of the project. But the way this played out was that at the start, um, a number of, we all were homebound because of the pandemic and many of our team members were stuck in different sites. So there is a dual purpose is we realized we needed to create a culture, a work culture, a sort of a team building culture across borders nationally, as well as within, right, in India, because people were spread across. And also to be able to connect with different stakeholders because our approach was not just to, to capture the voices of women workers uh, from below, but also the different uh, people within organizations and institutions in the public and private sector that could be, uh, you know, uh, in partnership, shape the future of work by addressing these concerns from their, you know, workers. So um, we started by actually uh, getting Renee Kooning on board, who is a digital sociologist, as you mentioned, but also he was managing our blog. And we thought, let's have a blog space to just, you know, get our thoughts, get to have an opinion about what was going on, have conversations, not just with the world outside, with each other, but also to be able to get to know um and figure these things out in a virtual context. And so that's something that happened in a very humble way, in a sort of a monthly way. And Usha, Renee, and I were just editing it uh, and putting it out there. And then it became a thing. It became a thing because people were interested in it, people were engaged with it, and then we were getting a number of uh, you know actors from the public and private sector interested in contributing to this. And at some point, the three of us looked at it and thought, this is a really rich set of blogs that should be built into something bigger. And so we decided to invite them to uh, contribute to a book and expand on their ideas. And we're very happy with the way in which this uh, played out because you would see, uh, as you can see, uh, firstly, it's extremely interdisciplinary, but also it cuts across sectors. And it's got very different writing styles. And the most importantly, it's meant to not just, you know, speak to academic audiences. It's meant to be uh, for any kind of lay people who are very interested in this area. And I hope we've accomplished that. Right. Thank you for that response, you know. So I also wanted to ask, how do you the how do you think the book becomes both global and interdisciplinary in character? The interdisciplinary character of this book um, actually started with, uh, firstly, the, the three of us, right? Usha is a feminist media scholar. I'm a digital anthropologist. Renee is a, a sociologist. But also we partnered with an organization called Justice Ada, which is a design and legal firm. So you have uh, legal scholars as well as designers on board. So already the core team uh, is very interdisciplinary. But when we reached out to people across board, we have urban planners, we have a number of also outside of the disciplines. So I think I would add another layer. It was intersectoral. And what I mean by that is it cuts across people doing work in very different sectors from construction to salon services to artisanal services, which means that they have different vocabularies. 
uh, understandings of the ways of uh, uh, work and policy work. And so I think that was really exciting because they had to keep their jargon outside the door and really engage with one another because you were really interested in seeing what cuts across these sectors. And in terms of global, I, I must say we, you know, this part of, it speaks to a larger trend in academia where there's a pushback that when it is a context which is not an Anglo-Saxon context, then we always have to preface it or we have to bracket it as in India, in Bangladesh. And it's as if that that kind of context is relevant for only those people e either living there or are studying it versus if it's in the Anglo-Saxon context, it is by default uh, global universalistic or normative sort of knowledge making, right? And so that's something that the three of us, Usha, uh, Renee, and I have been really, um, uh, you know, uh, attentive to because the notion is that we need to inform, uh, you know, uh, and uh, educate and bring awareness on the future of work, particularly in contexts like, uh, you know, India and Bangladesh it, amongst marginalized communities, because that is the radical normative, that is the majority of the world. And when we look at these contexts, they are highly repurposable to the rest of the world. So we're really flipping the pyramid here. Right. So uh, please also talk a little bit about the context in which the book is located. So maybe I can jump in here. In some senses, Pyle has already described the context, but just to flesh it out a little bit more, when we started the project, we were looking at um, you know, five sites of informal work uh, across India and Bangladesh, and the sites were um, a garment um, a sector, uh, sanitation, construction, home-based artisanal work, and um, also platform-based salon work. And the reason we chose these sectors is because uh, there was a very high degree of informality on the one hand, and also large numbers of women engaging in these sectors in an informal capacity. So, so that's the context of the project. But as you know, as Bile mentioned, uh, COVID struck and um, we had to really rethink our field work um, and everything moved online. So um, in that process, we discovered that uh, there was also uh, other areas where women were engaging, but we had not considered earlier, for instance, the ride hailing sector. Um, so that was another area where we felt there was a lot of learning to be had um, because companies like Ola in India and Uber were increasingly hiring women. Um, and at the same time, we found that the garment sector was difficult to study during the pandemic because things had almost ground, ground to a halt in Bangladesh with um, access becoming very difficult to garment workers. So that was the project context. And as we sort of debated these issues online and uh, started uh, reflecting on them through the blogs, we found that other people in other countries were also engaging with um, similar uh, questions from different perspectives. So, for instance, in South Africa, um, we had people talking about youth-led initiatives around work. Um, we had people in Latin America talking about um, issues related to informal economy. So the context, I would say, is varied, uh, both in terms of the origin of the book as well as in terms of the content that we ultimately ended up sourcing. Um, so that's that's in terms of the research context as well as the content 
you know, where the content came from. Yeah. Right. So how important is the COVID-19 pandemic to the story of your book? Well, uh, again, I think um, anyone who started work in 2020 um, cannot escape the pandemic, right? So if your work involved people um, in any way, in any space, um, then COVID was certainly a factor to consider. So I think Payal already spoke to this, to the fact that, you know, our field work had to be really reimagined uh, because that entire first year, uh, 2020, March onwards, uh, through a large part of 2021, we couldn't really organize the kind of field um, engagement that we had planned. So we had thought about doing uh, focus groups in the sites where women were working, uh, in their communities. So that became uh, difficult to do. Instead, we had to visit to in-depth interviews, doing a lot of our uh, outreach online. Um, so, so that definitely affected the way we um, uh, reached communities and engaged with them. But uh, talking about the book more specifically, and not just our project, I think COVID, in fact, was um, was in a strange way something that brought a community together. So. What the book represents, and I think that's certainly a fallout of, um, you know, the pivot to the online during COVID. Uh, what the book ended up, or what our blog ended up doing, was um, bringing together a community of people engaging with these issues. So, COVID affected our fieldwork negatively in some sense, but positively in terms of building this uh, community that produced the book. Could you also talk about the way in which the book is organized or structured? Yeah, maybe I can chime in here. So, um, you know, we organize a book along four dimensions, uh, design, governance, networks, and vision. And uh, part of the reason is uh, that we looked and mapped the kinds of blogs already, uh, which are part of our, you know, two-year sort of corpus, and we reorganized the players and the stakeholders in these dimensions. And we realized it made some really interesting categories. So, for example, the first category of design, uh, we engaged with people from Mishu, uh, like basically as a lot of platform services, right? Ola Mobility Institute uh, and, you know, um, uh, Urban Company. A lot of these gig companies, uh, which are uh, catering to salon services, to ride hailing and reselling and the role of women and how they were gaining mobility, how they were gaining some kind of uh, forms of dignity at workplace, uh, building uh, their organizing capabilities, but also their concerns and challenges. And it was very interesting to see this being captured by people from academia, like uh, to people who are working in the industry and you have both contributing to the design section. The second part is the governance section, which was uh, because the design part was really about putting the platforms at the center, right? And the governance was really putting, you know, the people at the center, the workers and their, their relationship with one another and the extent to which they can organize themselves in a way that can create a critical mass, can do a pushback, as well as the digital networks that could actually, um, you know, uh, come out of this. And so we focused on artisanal economies and the collectivizations in Bangladesh, 
Uh, for example, we had Web Foundation talk about digital connectivity and participation of women. Uh, and, you know, um, uh, also it was very interesting about the urban relocation. So the sort of uh, notion of like connecting the physical and the digital of, you know, how what happens when you relocate people. To, so anyway, so that was really about networks of uh, which were at once digital as well as social. Um, and that traveled well into the network section. Um, now, the difference between the governance and the networks is really that the governance is more about the relationship building so they can institute change. And with networks, it was really about the storytelling, um, you know, the sort of uh, implicit ideologies behind it. For example, we have Justice Ada contributing to that in terms of representation and action uh, of our shadow economies. And also one of the biggest challenges is how do you build stakeholder um, communities from below? And that was also something that we focused on in the network section. And the um, and last was about the vision because, you know, while you have these thoughts about uh, what's happening with automation and it could be, and it, it tends to be very binary in thinking that it's either going to replace human work, or it is going to, you know, create enormous amounts of opportunity. And so there's oftentimes like, you know, dystopic and utopic visions. And we were trying to break away from these binaries in a sort of true feminist fa fashion by showing the coexistence of, you know, contradiction and tension, but also opportunity. And we tried to do that with portraying futures, which are beyond the binary uh, you know, and that was the section of vision. So that was how we actually organized our book. And hopefully that serves as a nice guidance to this kind of work, I hope, in the future. Right. So how how do you think we can understand experiences of work from a feminist perspective in the global south? It's a very broad question, but if you could talk about a few examples from the book. Yeah, so, I mean... um. And let's let's take the you know part of the design section, right? Um, there is some interesting work from the ride hailing sector, and the uh, was that uh, you know there's a huge demand for women taxi drivers, and yet there's a limited supply. It's an extraordinary limited supply because women's movement in public space has always been you know watched closely because. You know, you are in uh, oftentimes patriarchal societies where the public nature of movement is very gendered. And so this has implications on uh, certain kinds of work, which demands interacting with strangers and moving in public spaces like the right hailing sector. But what we found, so th th there's a feminist perspective when we put women workers at the center here, is that what is it that they want what is it what does it take to get them on board because after all women customers also and other uh other constituents that are actually going to benefit from women as drivers for example uh children where a lot of parents felt safer uh having their children travel with women drivers for example but uh the feminist perspective was like uh, the interesting uh insights was that they oftentimes felt uh, that one of the big hurdles was there's not sufficient number of toilets 
uh, that were accessible as they were driving and clean and quality toilets, which were safe, right? So there was this, uh, also that they are, are meant to do care work and also household work. So they have to be able to decline, you know, certain kinds of uh, decline calls and decline certain opportunities and they get punished algorithmically for that. So we have to see that it's not, um, you know, uh, basically on the equal level playing field here. And these are some of the challenges for the right-hailing sector. And I think Usha can speak uh, to maybe the sanitation uh, sector and others, which she also was uh, part of. Yeah, um, thanks, Dan. Um So, you know, I think one of the uh, primary uh, drivers of our work and uh, something that I think should inform both policy and um, its implementation at various levels is that uh, when we're talking about women and work, we need to be informed not from uh, an economic or, um, you know, an industry level aspiration, but we need to be informed by how women's lives unfold at on the ground. And this is across sectors. Um, but getting more particular about it, or more specific about, you know, about it, um, as Pai said, uh, in the right-hailing sector, the very specific dynamics that uh, construct or constrain women's work. Similarly, in each of the other sectors, we found that um, there were very specific constraints. So when we're talking about sanitation, for instance, uh, typically, sanitation work is uh, contracted by the government. Uh, but what is happening increasingly, uh, particularly in large metro, metro cities, is that uh, it's being further subcontracted to private players. And um, there is an opportunity for women here um, and also a danger, right? Because uh, private sector in areas like uh, sanitation is very poorly regulated. Um, so that presents certain vulnerabilities to women. But at the same time, um, private uh, sanitation players are introducing technology into areas that women can possibly take advantage uh, of. Um, so we found like in Hyderabad, uh, there are uh, companies, new companies that are entering the sanitation space that work in waste handling and waste sorting. And these are occupations that used to be heavily uh, caste-based. Um, and they carry the stigma. But now when um, they're moving into the private sector, they're introducing um, technological tools to actually sort, to uh, label, and to um, uh, to package, repackage waste for further processing. And these are tasks that are happening within large uh, factory-type spaces, which offer shelter and a, a greater level of security than... Um, for women particularly, than working on the street in the usual ways we think about sanitation. So, uh, but even here, there are um, dynamics that one need, needs to pay attention to. So for instance, which women get access to uh, training in relation to these technologies? Um, you know, what sort of base level uh, do women start out um, at? Um, so these are things that we're discovering um, uh, that are uh, happening in even in sectors that were traditionally dominated uh, by certain caste dynamics and uh, privatizing in the sense has helped women. Um, so that is in terms of sanitation. And when we look at artisanal work, just to give you one more example, we find uh, that uh, artisanal work that is done in the home um, 
uh, has to happen within uh, the woman's life world, right? So um, she has to organize her home in a way that accommodates the artisanal work. She has to organize her time in that way. But these are dynamics that the market often doesn't uh, account for when um, they're either pricing a product or thinking about wages or thinking about occupational safety even. Um, so what a feminist viewpoint would do is to then ask where does a woman work and what does she need in that place of work when it is not a factory, when it is not an office. Um, and then those concerns need to be brought into thinking about regulation and policy from a feminist standpoint. Right. So what are some of the specific material and effective conditions of work that women do? I think, um, you know, finally, if I can take this yes, uh, yes. on. Yeah. So um, I think, again, everything we've been saying speaks to exactly that, right? So um, you cannot form policy at uh, higher levels without paying attention to the material conditions in which women work. Um, so let's take the, um, um, you know, the case of platform work. Um, and specifically beauty work on platforms. And one of the, uh, one of the rich areas of um, engagement that we had was with uh, salon workers who work for uh, platform-based companies like Urban Company. And um, the promise of these platforms has been that it professionalizes work that has otherwise not been deemed professional. And to some extent, that is true. But then when you examine the actual material conditions of work, uh, what happens is that these women are carrying out the work within domestic spaces, which are not their, their own. Um, and these spaces are not really regulated, right? So a woman, a young woman who works for Robin Company gets allocated a client and then she goes to this place, which may be in a remote area, uh, she goes into this home, um, um, all kinds of dynamics operate within the home. Uh, there are gender dynamics, there are caste dynamics. And these are very often things that are not really accounted for in the way uh, tasks are allocated or in the training that these young women uh, undergo. So, um, so we need to understand, you know, what are the spaces in which women work? How does the algorithm distance them actually from the company uh, when um, these platforms are designed? Um, and how does the material then need to be put back into uh, the design of the platform so that women not only have opportunities but also have safeguards when they're dealing with clientele. So that's one example in terms of the material conditions. And of course, you know, when we talk about affective conditions, and this goes to speak for women's work across sectors, both on platforms and out of platforms, um, the notion that uh, there is a lot of, there is an unpaid element of care that usually um, is layered over many jobs that women do, whether it is in beauty work or, as Bayal mentioned, uh, you know, you work as a driver. Um, you're expected to have that layer of politeness, of caring, um, which is certainly not valued economically, even though it's valued socially. So, um, so yeah, so I think these are some of the concerns that uh, come up when we talk about material and affective conditions. Right. So my next question is actually about how design, beat of technology, spaces or environments 
create more favorable conditions on the supply side of labor that can encourage women not only to enter the workforce but of course remain within it yeah so l- let's build on what usha just shared actually because it's a nice segue is uh, for example the case that she brought up about uh, urban company uh, a good case in point is that a number of, when you read the chapters a very rich chapter on uh, the women workers and the engagements at these spaces uh, that are not their own. Um, and uh, one of the requests and pushbacks is that these workers would appreciate to be able to rate customers too. So it's a two-way process uh, because there's so much emphasis on quality management for the customer, but not so much for the workers themselves in terms of safety, in terms of rudeness, in terms of respect, and there should be a sort of a critical mass of comments that if it's geared towards a particular client, then the client is blocked from using that service. So there has to be repercussions. And this we found cuts across sectors is that these can be really productive design elements algorithmically as well as, uh, you know, also in terms of Uh, organizationally, right? That means companies have to be invested in their workers and care about what their workers' conditions are and who they want to engage with. So um, this is also with the ride-hailing sector where they they should be able to rate uh, customers that were inappropriate, were misogynistic, who were, you know, making moves on them in the night, etc. And uh, if there are a number of comments, it has to be recorded, then they should not be able to use these platforms for a given period of time. Uh, and of course, there should be redressal mechanisms for both customers and workers. But um, so this is whether it's in the salon services, whether it's in ride hailing, any kind of gig work platforms should have a sort of two-way process. So that's just one element. But on a more sort of a social level, right, uh, say the construction sector, we noticed that, uh, as Usha also brought up, is the number of uh, spaces are deemed as work-related and others are not, even though a lot of women are engaged with these spaces which are not demarcated by the women themselves too. Like, for example, their own home in the case of artisanal uh, workers, right? And so we need to reimagine what workspaces can be and... um, broaden those environments. So in the case of the construction sector, oftentimes informally women uh, who are, you know, who are migrants, who have migrated with their husbands and their children are at the construction site and are helping out. And I, you know, I put that in quotes of helping out because they're actually laboring, but it is informal. It's often not recognized and they're also taking care of their children. So one of the ways in which it could become more favorable is that there could be much more of a formal organizing of crashes for their children, education, because oftentimes it has a sort of cascading effect. It impacts the education of their children and it creates higher inequalities in a sense in the long run because it's putting them back, right? Uh, It may put them ahead economically, but back socially for their children. So these are a number of ways in which we can start to think, not just for an individual, but for the family unit, for a sort of a, uh, in terms of multiple kinds of plural identities, in terms of migrants, as we've seen, particularly with the pandemic, that they became some of the most vulnerable groups 
uh, in India, but they were a formidable force to reckon with. And we realized that they were the underlying dynamic across sectors that kept these sectors alive. So not only do we need to recognize them, but also to create conditions which can actually give them due respect through formal arrangements, right? Um, I think the the last point I would say on this is about, say, for example, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, favorable favorable condition in the workplace in terms of upskilling, right? There needs to be spaces where they can grow, they can uh, share ideas, whether it's digitally as well as physically in proximity about how to improve their work conditions, how to improve their uh, quality of work, uh, also to see there's some sort of mobility for their own, you know, um, prospects. And I think in these ways, I think it could really enable these workers to uh, gain some meaningful employment. And uh, I would say that would underline the sort of feminist approach to the way in which we looked at the future of work here. Okay. So, uh, how do you think feminist values allow us to reimagine a more inclusive and empathetic idea of work? Um, well, actually, I think, you know, what Payal just said uh, pretty much uh, sums it up, right? So um, when we talk about feminist values, uh, we're not talking about something that is different just for women. But what we're hoping to say is that feminist values are are at the core of how we need to think about work for everybody, uh, women and people of other genders as well. Um, if work is to be inclusive, if it is to be dignified, if it is to be uh, meaningful, uh, both for uh, the worker and for the person who contracts the work. So we're not saying that, you know, um, the pendulum should swing so much the other way that we don't pay attention to pro uh, to productivity and profits. We recognize that those are important. But if you approach work from the point of view of the worker as being central and thinking about that worker as a woman, um, because women workers tend to be you know right at the bottom of uh, the pyramid in terms of um, how they are valued and the attention that is paid to their uh, well-being. So if you say that the last person in this value chain is the most vulnerable of women and attend to the needs of that person, then you find that the environment becomes better for everybody else. And I think this is a no-brainer, right? It is not, um, it's not something that we've discovered. It's, it's something that a lot of feminist uh, scholars have argued for in other spaces. Um, so I would say that um, when we're talking about feminist values in relation to work, uh, as we talked about feminist values in past years by, you know, in other forums, we talked about not separating the personal from the political. I think in relation to work, we have to start by not separating the professional from the personal and recognizing that there's a politics in both those spheres and we need to somehow integrate them through uh, a federal value system. Um, so yes, so feminist values are about uh, care, um, about dignity, about uh, empathy, about um, you know meaningfulness of work, and all of these things. Right. So last question: How do you understand fem work and its contribution towards the future of work? So um, you know, just our experience over the past three years uh, and uh, conversations with women, with advocates, with uh, designers, with uh, tech professionals, 
um, led us to believe that we needed to find a set of principles or parameters that could be applied both to policy and to uh, spaces of implementation. And this is what we call the FEMWORK principles, right? They're simple principles, but possibly they will be complicated in their um, application. And this is something that we would invite people to engage with. Um, so the principles we think will productively inform the design of contracts or the design of workplaces and the design of platform interfaces. And uh, just to run through the principles very bri uh, briefly, um, they are, um, you know, fairness, equity, uh, mobility enhancing in terms of worker mobility. Um, they're uh, focused on the worker's identity. Uh, they provide opportunity for meaningful organization, um, respect-based, particularly for the worker, and knowledge-based. And when we say knowledge-based, we mean um, a constant attention to what we can learn from context, the context of work and the context of the worker. So uh, those are the principles, and we think that they can be applied, um, you know, in a variety of contexts. Maybe Pyle would like to add something to that. Yeah, actually, so just to add to that is that um, you know we we pioneered this term femwork as a response to the trend of femtech. So in the last few years, femtech as a field has been celebrated as one of the big feminist approaches to the market at uh, basically designing for women by women kind of thing and it's it's you know it's a now like a 50 billion dollar industry right and so there's this, a lot of uh, enthusiasm about femtech um, but there's also this very neoliberal marketized approach to it and so we want to uh, sort of decenter the tech uh, you know solutionism oriented uh, sort of approach to feminist uh, futures of work and actually put the replace tech with work. Because after all, in today's digital economies and today's digital spaces, tech is work. And in a sense that as soon as we, whether we are engaging directly or indirectly, we are contributing data. And in that way, we are laboring. And that sort of broader perspective allows us to ask different kinds of questions from that framing of femtech, right? So yeah, so the three of us, uh, Renee, Usha, and I, uh, came up with this concept because we felt there was a need for another sort of framing to approach it, which is not just putting technology at the center. And we hope, uh, you know, to, as Usha said, uh, use this as a way in which we can engage further with other people who are interested in feminist futures of work, which is not about putting the market at the center, not to say that that's not important, but it def definitely has to be decentered from the, you know, the well-being of the workers and their, you know, so yeah, their social, economic, but also you know, their, their broader well-being as a community. Thank you so much, Payal and Usha, for giving us this time and talking about your book. I hope that our listeners now pick up a copy and get reading to it. So thank you once again for giving us your time. Just to just to say uh, to the listeners that it's an open access book. It can be freely downloaded. Uh, so just head over to Amsterdam University Press. Yes, and thank you so much for this time. Okay. Thank you.
Yes, you heard uh, Usha. It's an open access book, so you can just download it and read it for free. Thank you.